Oh, snap! The world is finally waking up to the crap that's baked into and sprayed on kibble dog food. No longer can commercial pet food manufacturers fool us with pretty pictures and false promises. This is the raw dog food truth. The view and opinions expressed on this podcast are not intended to replace medical advice. Before starting any raw diet, do research, ask lots of questions, and consult your vet. Well, hello, raw feeders. I am Dee Dee Mercer Moffat, the CEO of Raw Dog Food and Company, where your pet's health is our business and we're friends. Don't let friends feed kibble. Today is Friday. That means that the wonderful, fabulous Dr. Judy Jasek is here with us answering questions. How are you today, Dr. Jasek? I'm, I'm doing great. Ready to save the world. Okay. One dog do at it. a time, one That's cat right. at a time, one person at a time. Right. Because I think what we do also bleeds over into people health, right? Because you can't look at your dog and say, it doesn't make sense to feed them processed foods. And then you're stuffing your own face with processed foods, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the principles are very, very similar. One thing that I want to tell people um, is that they really do need to get signed up on your private membership association, Dr. JC, because um, there are things that happen, right? People um, want to help somebody else's pets. Uh, maybe they have an emergency and they have not signed up with your mm-hmm. private membership association. You can't do anything without that. And it doesn't cost any money. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. people just come on over, get signed up, um, read the documentation so that they're ready when they do need you? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, And even, you know, so, you know, for me to help people with their pets, you know, we, we do want you established as a client. And so, you know, fill out an intake form. Um, We have clients that will just do a short, like meet and greet. We could even do a meet and greet phone call. So you're established as a, as a client. And then if you, you know, you have an emergency, something's going on, you've signed our membership form. We can do we can help you a lot quicker because you've already taken all those steps. So it, and it doesn't, I mean, like you said, takes a little bit of time, doesn't, doesn't cost anything, you know, just get established as a client and then we can help you a lot more, a lot more quickly if there is an emergency. They get a little bit freaked out when it says private membership association. Why do you think that is? Probably just because it's different, you know, they're not, they're not, used to having to sign something like this. And, you know, we do have a clause in that, that we ask that um, people, if there's a, if there's a dispute, so people are unhappy with our services that they allow us to try to, you know, mediate that with them. We ask people that if they're, you know, concerned about something we're doing, or there's, you know, a, a dispute over payments or anything like that, that we work it out internally but that doesn't mean that we can do things illegal or unethical it's not giving us a carte blanche to just do whatever we want you know like they do for the vaccine companies that make billions of dollars selling vaccines with complete immunity and not even testing them you know that that's unethical <laughs> what we're doing is not unethical we just want to be able to keep doing what we're doing do this as a membership like a big family where we can just talk about things internally and work things out. And this allows us to keep doing the work we're doing. And that's what it's all about. 
We just want to be able to keep doing this work that helps pets tremendously and so much more than conventional medicine and the conventional quote unquote standard of care. And we're not a one size fits all either, which is what a lot of conventional practices do. You know, every pet, same vaccine schedule, same schedule of heartworm and flea and tick and all these maintenance things. It's the same schedule. They don't have a conversation about what's what's the risk. What's your pet's underlying health? Are there any contraindications to doing vaccinations? You know, we, we have all of those conversations with people and, you know, that raises more scrutiny than one size fits all, which I think um, one size fits all approach to medicine is highly unethical. <laughs> and it is the way of the world at the moment. Every one of you need the exact same thing. Oh, did you hear uh, now, Dr. Um, Jasek, what's happening out in California? Now you have to wear a mask if you haven't had the flu vaccine. Oh, no way. I have not heard that. Oh, mm -hmm. I knew there's going to be more layers of this stuff coming. I just right. didn't know what they try to pull, but they test things in California. You know, oh. they're the testing ground. Of course. Yes. So uh, watch for that coming uh, near you. And as Dr. Judy Mikovit said, uh, if you want to stay healthy, don't ever inject anything else into your body. Okay. Yeah question that came in from one of our listeners. And I think we have addressed some of this before, but here is the question, Dr. Tracy, can dogs safely eat spicy foods? And in this case, I'm specifically meaning hot garlic. Mm -hmm. I grow Korean red garlic. It is very hot. I love it, but I can't eat it raw on an empty stomach. My dog, who's a four-year-old intact, 60-pound black lab, has eaten some of this Korean red garlic, but it's lacto-fermented, and he never gets more than one clove with his OMAD, I'm not sure what that is, bowl of homemade raw food. No one I've heard speaks about the good reasons for feeding garlic to dogs, discusses the types of garlic or the condition of the garlic, whether it should be raw, fermented, commercial jar, et cetera, which yes, we have addressed that. The podcast did touch on smashing raw clothes. That's because we suggest raw. Uh, so that was addressed in the episode. But she said, and then there's the elephant garlic, which isn't garlic, it's an onion. And we would say, don't feed that. But she said, uh, thank you for the podcast. I've learned a lot from the podcast. Please keep up the great work. Thank you so much. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, very, very hot red Korean garlic. I personally, Dr. Jasek, do not know. Uh, there are some people who would say dogs do not have a the ability to determine if something is spicy or not. Now, I don't know that that is the case or not. But I'm probably not going to give my dog something that is super duper spicy, regardless. What say you? Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, because spicy is a taste preference for people. Like we don't need spicy food either, but it's a taste preference. Some people like spicy food. I like spicy food, but I can eat it just so spicy or doesn't like me so much. And my husband can eat super spicy food 
and he really loves it and it doesn't and it doesn't bother him but we don't know that about the pets we don't know how it's affecting them and like you said why i mean i look at you know pet nutrition is we should be feeding them things that are nutritionally beneficial now there's certain specific things that garlic can help with it it is a natural antibiotic so maybe short term to you know help fight an infection um I do have clients that use, um, there's some dried garlic products out there that help repel fleas and ticks. So in the summertime to do that, pet smells like garlic and evidently the fleas don't like garlic. I don't know if they like spicy garlic though or not. I never asked a flea what, what their um, you know ethnic food preferences are, but it does seem to help some pets, you know, repel the bugs. So for specific reasons that, you know, it's like using an herb, like, we don't give like herbs mostly just because we give it for a specific reason. So that's the way I see garlic and in reasonable doses, it's safe. Onions are much more toxic, even though they're in the same family, garlic and onions are in the same family. Onions are much more toxic and, and they, they don't have to eat as much. I mean, a piece or two of onion culinary use of onion occasionally isn't going to poison your dog. But if they're getting it on a regular basis, it can be toxic. It actually causes an anemia. But garlic, given therapeutically in short term, so I wouldn't give it all the time, you know, can have some benefits. But there's no nutritional need for it. Now, you know, if you ask, you know, you know should I feed my dog liver? Like, well, there's a lot of great nutritional benefit to feeding liver. So there's huge, you know, benefits to feeding your dog liver and other organs and the, the things we recommend. But things like garlic... Um, I would say unless there's a specific therapeutic reason, I, I probably wouldn't feed it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it is true or not that dogs don't have whatever it is in their taste buds or in their messenger that says this is spicy to determine whether something is or isn't. I have no idea. Do you know about that? I've heard about that. The spicy garlic or? Well, just yeah. spicy things. So for oh, instance, if, yeah. if a dog was given, let's say salsa, hot salsa. Oh. I don't know why you would because there's a lot of things in there you wouldn't want. But anyway, um, would they be able to say, wow, that is some kind of spicy? Or would they like, you know, wow. Yeah, I think usually like if like, I think things that are really strongly flavored, for the most part, I don't think dogs just wouldn't eat them. Like you said, if it's really spicy, I'd expect them to, or they might even just smell it and say, oh, no, that's too strong. Or they might, you know, take a little bit and like, oh, that's kind of spicy. It's not a natural, you know, think about, you know, our, our species appropriate diet approach. What do dogs eat in nature? Right? I don't think they're putting salsa out there on the elk they just killed, you know. Right. And it would be interesting to know, do they run through the like red peppers? You know, do they, <laughs> do they eat red peppers or jalapenos or anything like that? Because no, they, they don't know. All right. right. So I, I, I can't really answer that question. I can't really answer that question, but for me, I don't think I would, but I'm also not somebody that's going to eat a lot of hot, hot, you know, peppers or things like that. Right. So that maybe that's anthropomorphism. I'm putting my yeah. traits onto my dog. Yeah, but I think I think it's also anthropomorphizing to. Oh, thank you for say that be, saying say, that correctly. <laughs> you know, 
I told you, that's what we learn in doctor school is how to anthropo- yeah, anthro- I say it again. Anthropomorphizing. Easy for you to say. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, think it's more anthropomorphizing to say my dog likes spicy garlic because you have no way of knowing that. That's true. That's true. So uh, you may you may be able to do that. And maybe if it's fermented, uh, great. But uh, I, I prefer just the real, you know, basic garlic, one clove, it's raw, uh, put it in a, a clove, you know, smusher, and then a, a dose accordingly to the dog size. And we've, we've covered that a couple of times. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So here's another question that came in. Um, this came in with a picture. This particular dog has a cyst for a lack of a better word on my part on its back. Okay. And it has little uh, holes in the cyst where it is oozing. Something is oozing from that, whether that is a liquid, whether that is sometimes blood. The question is whether that should be taken off because it's in an area, Dr. Jasek, where the dog cannot obviously bite on it or scratch on it. Now the dog can Mm -hmm lay down on the ground and rub its back. And typically this is, excuse me, what happens when this particular cyst begins to ooze. But this customer um, has been given two dramatically different assessments from the vet on how much this will cost to take this cyst off. One clinic wants $1,500 to take it off because they're going to run all types of tests and look at it and see if it's cancerous and take it off and blah, blah, blah. And the other one said, yeah, I could do it for, you know, 200 bucks. We'll just whack it right off. So the question is, should you take it off at all? If it is oozing, if it's in the area of which I just stated, um, what would you do in this situation? Because a lot of people look at that and say, oh, that's cancer. I got to get the cancer off the dog. Right. Well, first of all, I, I don't, I don't ever do a knee jerk and say, just because of the lumps there, we should remove it. And, and even if it's a malignancy and actually, especially if it's a malignancy and, and I don't even advocate, and we've talked about this before. I don't even advocate really poking needles and things and doing aspirates. Cause I've seen it blow up malignant tumors. I have seen it just blow up and, and make them spread like crazy, just putting a needle in it to do an aspirate to find out what it is. So I tend to take the approach, let's support the whole body and see if the body can start to manage this better and get this lump to calm down or shrink. And so, yes, there's things we can do. You know, of course we start with nutrition, there's herbs, we have ozone. We can actually inject ozone gas underneath the skin, right underneath a lump like that. And sometimes we've actually had a case, I think it was a mast cell tumor we did that it was just a few injections the thing went away completely went away we actually got before and after pictures for it and things gone it looks like it was surgically removed so there's other ways to treat it that i think i would try and topically um, we use an ozonated olive oil which is olive oil with ozone infused into it so you get when you have a, a you know a, a surface lump like this, and especially one that's kind of open and oozing, because the ozone can get into it better. We even can sometimes put herbs in the oil, so we can treat it topically. That works especially well in locations like this where 
the um, where the dog can't get to it and lick the herbs off. But then even if it does, it's just getting an oral dose of the herbs too. So it's sort of, you can't, you can't lose with that one. Um, the times that I would recommend removing a lump, um, like one like this, is if it just really became a management problem. So say the dog was just getting the, rubbing this thing all the time, getting it bleeding, it's bleeding, it's oozing, it's messy, um, you know, because when it's open, then it's susceptible to infection. So if it just really becomes hard to manage, then, you know, I'm, I might say it might, might make sense to remove it, but I would do the other stuff first and see if we can get it to shrink down. I mean, I've had many people tell me like um, these little fatty lumps, I don't think this is a fatty lump. This looks like more of a cyst, like an external cyst of some sort, but these little lipomas, I mean, people tell me all the time they switch their dog to raw food and the lipomas shrink because they're, you know, they're, I, I think they're walling off toxins in the fat from the crappy kibble food that they were eating before and they don't need that anymore. And so they can, you know, the body can detoxify better gets rid of them. So there are things that can treat these by treating the whole body. So I would definitely try that first. Um, and then if something is easy to move now, a, a tumor that has like a deep attachment, like if it's just in the skin and it's becoming a really management problem, chances are that can be removed and you won't have an issue with regrowth. Anything that's at all extending deep into the tissues and there's a chance that you're not going to get the whole thing removed. I can guarantee you that thing's going to grow back and it's going to grow back with a vengeance and way faster and way more aggressively. So don't ever have anything debulked. You'll hear this term sometime. Debulking means we can remove 70% of it. Don't ever do that because you know you're leaving tumor behind and it's just going to grow back. So I would never, never do a, a debulking. It actually makes things makes things worse. But something like this, I would definitely try to manage it topically, systemically, see if we can get it to, um, you know, to, to calm down a little bit before rushing into surgery. And, you know, as far as the 1500 versus the 200, you know, I, I would make sure, you know, some of the, so some of the differences between surgery. So you go into like a more of a specialty clinic, they're going to charge you more just because it's a specialty clinic, but there can be differences such as, are they putting a catheter in and giving the pet IV fluids during surgery? I think this is important. It's important for support, but you also have an IV line. If something does not go well, you you're already in the vein, you can give that dog, you know, medicines if you need to give it something because it's heart slows down too much or something like that. You have immediate access and the fluids always help, helps them metabolize the drugs because a lot of times, you know, they get done with anesthesia, they're a little nauseous and they might not, um, you know, um, if, if they're not hydrated, they're not going to metabolize the drugs as well. Make sure that they're doing general anesthesia. I mean, some at that really low end price, they might be looking at that and saying, oh, we could just put a local under there and remove it. And I don't recommend that because um, it's really hard to hold pets still. You can numb an area, but it, you know, if it takes three people to hold the dog down to do the procedure, it's really, really stressful for them. So I don't recommend that. So I would find out what exactly, what, what procedure they're doing, what type of anesthesia, 
what type of monitoring. So that's another thing that'll cause a big price difference. You want, you know, if your pet's anesthetized, you want them hooked up to an EKG and a pulse ox, you know, so that if something changes, you know about it right away. Because the way we prevent unfavorable outcomes in anesthesia is getting on top of them quickly. And that's where the monitoring equipment really helps, but it's expensive. I mean, you know, you wanted to invest in good monitoring equipment at you're probably 15 to $20,000 these days. So some clinics might not do that. And so they charge less, but that's a huge safety factor. So I, I would ask some questions about how they do their surgery, what their procedures are before just saying, oh, I just, you know, I want to pay, I'd rather pay $200 than $1,500, but you could be compromising your pet's safety. So were you saying that if you can move a cyst, it is not a versus one that's pretty hard and stiff where it's not movable, would that indicate that it is attached to something deeper in the body if it's not movable? Right, right. The more, the more stable it is. And I would say as a general rule, the more aggressive malignancies, like you can feel that deep attachment because that tumor, the aggressive malignancies, especially the ones that grow really rapidly, they're using the blood supply of the body to do that. So they have to be like kind of connected to the circulation. There are some lumps. So like some mast cell tumors grow just in the skin. So they're just in the skin and they're very, they're very mobile, but even those, I, I, I've seen those removed and they just grow back like right away, right in that same area. It's like, there's a signaling mechanism, like, oh my gosh, this tumor has gone. We got to, you know, start to grow some more of them. It's a very unusual, um, cancer, cancer behaviorally like mast cell tumors. The only tumor type I've seen that'll go up and down. I mean, they can dramatically change size. Like they could blow up and be three times as big one day. And then they go back down. They're just very, very reactive and they spread. I, I mean, these, you know, um, tumors that, that can like blow up post-op. I've never seen that as dramatic as I have with mast cells. And sometimes just from a needle aspirate, I've seen these just blow up and take hold. So I think, you know, you, you have to be careful. That's why I say if it's not a, you know, a problem, if it's not a management problem, let's treat the pet systemically and try to avoid removing. I mean, I always try to avoid removing. I mean, sometimes, you know, again, there's a judgment call. It's, it's a, it's a mass. That's a mess. The dog's always getting it bleeding, you know, then you sometimes have to make um, another decision about that, but I, I don't recommend sticking needles into things. Um, and I definitely would not, I, I definitely wouldn't remove anything with a deep attachment because you're just, there's just no way you're going to get it all. And it's just going to grow back. I've seen it more times than I would care to count. So how do we calm pet parents down in regards to this thinking that right there is cancer. And if I don't remove it, the cancer is going to spread into the body. How do we help them with that? So what I, what I tell people, and this is the way I look at cancer. I think cancer is always systemic. It's always from the second that you see that tumor pop up cancer, there's cancer cells all over the body. The immune system has missed some and allowed them to form into this tumor. 
So in my opinion, removing a tumor does not treat the cancer. It's, it has to be treated systemically. And this is why we don't see good results with conventional cancer treatments because they're designed just to attack the visible cancer. They're not doing anything to help support the body. So if you just focus on, okay, there's that tumor there. I don't like looking at it. I'm worried about cancer. I get that removed. Cancer's gone. Cancer's not gone. Because I can guarantee you there's still circulating tumor cells in the body. And if you don't address, you know, what's, what's the missing link in this pet and, and why did, why did this pet's immune system miss these malignant cells and allow them to turn into a tumor? If you don't address those issues, you're just setting the pet up for more cancer and you put them through a surgery. So their body is stressed. Um, you know, so I think it, it depends on how you look at cancer. If you look at cancer is just that tumor and I remove that tumor, cancer's gone. Cancer's not gone. You haven't treated the whole pet. And, and I've been doing this long enough. And I used to be of that mindset. Well, a lump pops up, let's just get it off of there. Right. Um, that doesn't help. And we like, you know, see regrowth, we see more spread. I've actually sat in lectures where, um, there's some school of thought that there's like a signaling mechanism. And once there's a tumor, it actually inhibits metastasis elsewhere because it's, there's already a tumor there. So it's, but you remove that tumor and then there's like the signaling mechanism for the circulating tumor cells to take up shop elsewhere in the body. That's why we often see metastasis after a surgery, seen it so many times, like pets fine. We've got this one tumor get it removed. And then all of a sudden, two months later, we've got metastasis in the lungs and elsewhere in the body. Now, part of that could have been the stress of going through the procedure, but I think, you know, a lot of that is this, there's just a lot about how cancer acts in the body that we don't know, but I know this for certain, our best chance is supporting the whole body and focusing on that and not attacking the cancer. And I know it's hard. I know it's really hard for people like psychologically, because you got this tumor there and you're looking at it every day and you just really want it gone. And now if like this picture you sent me, say this should just happen to be a benign cyst, you could, they could take this dog and get it removed and it'd be a done deal. That's true. But you have to think, what if it's not? What if it is something more serious? Then you're, you're setting the pet up for a whole lot more disease. So that's why I stick to, regardless of what it is or what it looks like or what I think it might be, let's see if we can manage it by supporting the pet and not, um, not just attacking the, the lump or the growth. Yeah. Did you know that the statistics say that your dog has a 50-50 chance of getting cancer. Yeah, it's huge. And, you know, the question is, why? And the second question is, of all of the money that has been sent to whomever to do the research on cancer, why can we not find the solution to this disease, to this devastating, devastating disease? And right now, I bet, Dr. Jasek, everyone knows somebody with cancer. And if you don't know them, you're going to know them in the next couple of years because it is just, it is just skyrocketing. Um, 
but but it drives me insane because you know when we really look in in the 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 Western A price or we look at some of these more holistic um, approaches, you know, they really talk about things that we don't ever talk about. Um, when you say, okay, um, cancer cells um, are, 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 they're different than normal body cells because they never die on their own. Normal cells mm-hmm. that are old or damaged, they, they carry this programming that causes their death. And so then the body comes in and it walls off this cancer, right? And that's the tumor and it tries to keep it at bay. But it's like just that little bit of information should help us figure out how to make the body work. So it destroys these bad cells. Right. And that's why I think that the solution to cancer is not in treating the cancer. At that point, we're already quite far behind the ball and we're and we're playing catch up the key is in prevention and as far as i'm concerned this is super simple i know exactly why pets get cancer because they're fed crappy diets a lot of them not the people that are feeding raw but people that are feeding kibble diets overly processed toxic diets within we don't even know the ingredients. So they're not getting good nutrition and the foods are often toxic. And then we're poisoning their bodies by pumping them full of vaccines, other pharmaceuticals. We live in a toxic world. There's glyphosate. People are spraying all the time. Here in Colorado, you see somebody with these beautiful, perfectly groomed green lawns with no weeds. I can guarantee you that's all full of chemicals because that doesn't grow naturally here because we just were semi-arid. And, and so pets, I think, are exposed to a toxic soup day in and day out. And it's extremely important. We have to change the things we can change. We can correct the diet. We can minimize or eliminate. My point of view is the fewer vaccines, the better. Minimize pharmaceuticals as much as possible. And then the pet will at least stand a chance of handling some of the external toxins that we can't completely control. We can't control completely what's in the air, what's in the water, though you can do filtered water, which I do recommend get, you know, don't ever, ever, ever give your pet like tap water or, you know, city water, God knows what's, what's in there. And, you know, take your pet places where it's not finely groomed lawns. If you can it, you know, take them to more natural spaces and control the things you can control. And then your pet is going to stand a much better chance of hand because the body can detoxify, but if it's overloaded, it just isn't going to be able to. And if you're not supporting it nutritionally, its organs are not going to be healthy enough to, to detoxify. And honestly, anymore, I think that what I treat, I mean, I look at all sorts of different conditions, but fundamentally what I'm treating is poor nutrition and vaccine injury. If we corrected those two things, I bet you 90% of the chronic illness we see in pets would go away and we'd be treating, you know, acute illness and injury primarily. I, I truly believe that. And that comes from all my years of experience, because what's the common denominator that we see in pets that have chronic illness. It's those things, poor nutrition and over-medicated and especially over-vaccinated. And then the others, you know, there's going to be some genetic variation 
and, you know, external toxins and, and things like that. But it is more important than ever to control the things that we can control to keep our pets healthy. Yeah. I mean, glyphosate's um, it is that active ingredient in the herbicide roundup. Okay. And it's a big known weed killer. One of my neighbors, um, they sold their house, but they're renting out the apartment uh, above the driveway and she feeds raw. Mm-hmm. And she said, Oh my gosh, our new owner was out with her roundup spraying the weeds in the cracks of the driveway. And, and, and the new owner has dogs. And, and and this is just not um, making a connection in in people's head, especially when it comes to kibbles, because kibbles contain glyphosate laden ingredients like corn, soy, beets. um, And there's a lot of carcinogens in uh, kibble dog food that's why we say friends don't let friends feed kibble because we want to keep our pets alive right and dogs do not need grain to have a healthy heart i mean we've talked about that a lot but i'm just going to reiterate that because i still have people come in and, and say that well i was told that if my dog doesn't eat grains you know it's not it's going to be you know more susceptible to to um dilated uh, cardiomyopathy and it, it's it's just not true I mean, we've kind of beat that topic to death already, but it's not true. And you keep hearing it. It's not true. Your dog does not need grains and please don't feed kibble. No. And there, there was an article that uh, dogs naturally did where they posted some of the kibble foods and maybe even some of these are, I I don't know if they're all kibble, but um, these are the ones that tested for glyphosate. Perina cat chow complete, Perina dog chow complete, kibbles and bits, the chef's choice. Mm. Oh my. Friskies, indoor delights, nine Mm. lives, indoor complete. Why they use this name complete? Complete with white crap. Rachel Ray, zero grain. I'm's proactive health. Rachel Ray, nutrition, supreme, super premium. Oh my God. And uh, Perina beyond natural, simply nine. So I just, I wonder if they're sitting around and they say, all right, we know that this has glyphosate, this causes all types of cancer, infertility, brain disorders, and heart disease, but let's come up with a really great name that sounds nutritious. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's all marketing and it's just words and, you know, people, people fall for it. I mean, you know, I guess I've been reading, I've read labels obsessively for so long for both pets and, and for myself. I mean, so I, I shop places like, like natural grocers that I know for the most part, most of the stuff they get in is good. Cause I don't, otherwise every, if I went into the grocery store, I would be there an hour just reading labels because I read labels on everything. If I don't know what it is or it's not marked organic. And so I like to go to the more natural grocery stores where at least they've done some of the legwork. Um, but with, with my clients, um, because I, I, I mean, I had somebody in just yesterday and, and, you know, this, this is where this creative marketing is so powerful. I don't remember what kibble she said they were feeding, but it was a kibble and, and, and she's, and I said, well, it's important that we're not feeding all these processed carbohydrates. Oh, there's no carbs in that one. And I said, I bet there are. <laughs> so we pulled it up. Sure enough, 
uh, red lentils, green lentils, pea protein, pea starch. Um, and there were some good meat ingredients before that. So, you know, it had some good stuff in it, but then by the time you process the heck out of it, it, it isn't nutritious anyway, but they're all bad. I mean, there just is no good kibble. And by the time you process them at the level that kibble is processed, this extrusion process at, you know, very, very high temperatures, it doesn't matter what ingredients are in there. They've, they've taken all the nutrition out of it. And then they have to spray a vitamin and mineral supplement back on. And then that makes it, you know, look really good on the label because then they meet AFCO standards, which, which means nothing, but they're, they're all garbage. You have to stop feeding kibble, find some other way, um, you know, or, or you're going to be, you're going to be paying not only monetarily in treating chronic illness in your pet, but the heartache of having a chronically ill pet, you know, that that's, that's hard to watch. I mean, you know, I work with a lot of cancer patients and it's, it's heartbreaking to see what people go through. This is, this is not easy, you know, and it's very expensive. So I can guarantee you that feeding a raw diet is going to save you way more in the long run in, in both money and, you know, the strain of having a chronically ill pet. Well, I'm going to send you a link to this site. And actually, I got this from Dr. Andy Car uh, Harper, and uh, it's called Pet Test. And it's a weird link. So it's like an API dot uc uh calc dot pro it's, it's a weird link so it doesn't have a name that you can memorize so i'll send it to you but basically you can give this to your clients dr jasek and you can even do it for them hmm. but it's where they can turn the bag over okay and 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 i don't know whether this site is collecting information because it's saying enter the name of the dog food um then it has you put in the protein, the fat, the fiber, and the moisture, and it's going to kick out what the dry matter carbs are, what the fiber is, what the protein is, what the fat is. Mm, and this is where I think that people um, can really see that because they don't know these calculations. They don't know that they are to add these things up. So the protein, the moisture, the ash, and the fat, right? Add those up, subtract it from a hundred. And that should, that should tell you what the carb is, what the carb count is, the sugar count is. However, as I was explaining to a customer today who said, you're assuming that there is sugar in my premium kibble. To which we said, we're not assuming, we know, because we do this mm -hmm. all the time. So let's go right. over the numbers. Now, when I don't really know the exact brand, so I said, here's one of the brands of which you are feeding. And it came out to be 28% in carbs. I said, however, they are jacking with the protein number. So they, mm -hmm. they gave on the back of the bag a 38% protein count. Now, when you really look in there, there were lentils, there were beans, there were all types of, of, of different plant matter of which they are going to increase that protein number. And then in the fat content, it had pollock oil, it had chicken fat. Um, so they were increasing the fat. They said in this kibble, it had 16% fat. I said, now here's the thing. Hmm. People are always freaking out about 
undenatured true animal fat in a raw diet. And I said, and it could be true that if you fed 16% fat, that maybe your dog would have loose poops. But why is it that people don't look at that and question that in the kibble formulation? But those were just two examples of which I said, if the true protein was knocked down to somewhere around maybe 25 instead of that 38, and a real uh, and 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 the good fat was knocked down, you would see that your carbs are way higher. So this is the way that they jack with these mm-hmm. numbers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's very difficult for people to to understand that. And they get really defensive and they get really upset because we are presenting them with just some information that would say, hey, you might want to take a look at this. And this is very possible why your dog is not doing well on an inappropriate species diet. Right. So I just sent you that. That's me. I just sent you that that link. So take a look. I will take a look. That'll be fun to get people, get people doing that. All of this kind of stuff is very important, especially when you have your dog uh, subjected to inappropriate foods, inappropriate treats, and then toxins we can get a really good idea of why there is a 50-50 chance of your dog getting cancer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's very, it's very plain to me. It's, it's no, it's no mystery what, whatsoever, but, but again, you have to start when these dogs are puppies because uh, sadly they start getting vaccinated. So early in life, five, six weeks, sometimes they haven't even, you know, gone to their permanent homes and they've already been compromised by these, by these early vaccines. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really important. I think that people get educated if you're, you know, if you're getting a puppy, I mean, sadly the rescues, which, you know, it's great to get an unwanted pet, but that needs a home, but they're so over-vaccinated. They spay and neuter so early. These pets are just set up for chronic disease. And it's, it's really sad. And I know they're well-intentioned and they think they're doing well by the pets, but the rescues, like, you know, they move pets around every time they move them, they just give them another round of vaccines and, you know, these pets and the, and they're stressed and, you know, they can't feed a top quality diet. In a lot of cases, they have to feed what, what they can get or what's donated to them. But, you know, um, these pets are just, are set up for chronic illness. It's, you know, sad, but true. So you get a dog from a rescue that is, might be what you're, what you're up against. Well, and some of you are out there saying, well, what are my options? And that is why you want to go over to ahavet.com. You want to get signed up now on Dr. Jasek's private membership association. Cost you nothing. You want to go over there, get your pet established, and then have a consultation. Doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can talk to Dr. Judy Jasek about what are my options? You know, what, what if I get a dog from a rescue? What if I'm going to go get a new puppy? What are my options? Because I'm afraid that my dog is, is not going to be protected from this disease or that disease. What can I do that is healthy in their diet, in their treats, um, in any kind of supplementation or anything like that, what should I do? 
so that I'm not going to put my dog in that 50-50 category. You don't want to set your dog up for cancer. And maybe it's just that you don't know. Maybe you're following some protocol that we see over and over again that leads to cancer, like the cytopoints, like the apoquils, mm-hmm. like those immu, uh, su- uh, immunosuppressants. Those, uh, Dr. Jasek, I think you would say you see that all the time. So get over to ahavet.com, get on that PMA, get yourself in that association. It's fabulous. It's wonderful. Uh, Cost you nothing. Then get over to rawdogfoodandco.com. Remember, we have yappy hour every single week. So we're going to help you beat inflation. But do the cost comparison. What is the cost comparison with this crappy kibble, um, crappy supplements, crappy treats that's setting your dog up? What is the cost, the true cost comparison? If you're confused, hit that I'm overwhelmed button. We will <laughs> help you. Okay. We've got a great team right here at Raw Dog Food and Company. Remember, Dr. Jasek is here every single Friday. If you have questions that you would like to have answered right here on the podcast, email me at info at rawdogfoodandco.com, where your pet's health is our business and we're friends. Don't let friends feed kibble. We'll see you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Oh, snap. Find out how you can start your dog on the road to health and longevity. Go to rawdogfoodandcompany.com, where friends don't let friends feed kibble and where your pet's health is our business. Just snap.